Welcome to episode 1620 of the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann. Today's interview is a roundtable recorded in Clear Creek, Kentucky, in mid-April 2016. The participants in the conversation include Jeremy Zimmerman, author of Make Mead Like a Viking, Ziggy Laloya of The Year of Mud, Eric Perrow and Michael Beck of The Push, and Susanna Lane of Salamander Springs Farm. This is the first of two pieces from that evening. Today's ends as Susanna and I had to leave, her to a birthday party, and for me to carry on a tradition of reading bedtime stories to my children each night, even when I'm on the road. In the next episode, you'll hear Eric Perrow behind the microphone as the guest host leading the conversation. I haven't listened to it yet, so I have no idea what's in there. What I do know is that in the panel discussion today, we talk about mead and mead making, natural building, and permaculture farming. Throughout, you'll hear about the importance of having community and people to share your work, knowledge, and experiences with. Together, we create more than we do alone. Before we begin, a thank you to everyone who supports the podcast. For Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast, that includes an exclusive two-hour video of a workshop with Jeremy on making mead during his visit to Clear Creek. Also, thank you to the show sponsors who help me keep this show on the air. If you would like to be a sponsor or advertise an event or course on the show, you can find information on how to email my coordinator in the show notes. The sponsors for this episode are Inside Edge Design and Permi Kids. Inside Edge Design in Helena, Montana, is a permaculture design consulting and education firm that offers designs that focus on creating sustainable and ecological cultures that support people and the landscape. In cooperation with Broken Ground Permaculture and Penny Livingston Stark, they're offering a permaculture design course from July 15th to the 27th, 2016, specifically created to accommodate families and couples. Find out more at Inside Edge Design or via the link in the show notes. Permi Kids, created by permaculture practitioner and educator Jen Mendez, is a resource to inspire and nurture those teachers, parents, and families interested in incorporating permaculture education into the lives of children, in the community, or at home. Through the site, Jen offers a free ongoing podcast where you can learn about transitioning to a rich, ecologically sound life that includes children and learning at every step of the way. If you want to dive deeper, you may be interested in her Community Experiential Education by Design program or the ongoing series of Edge Alliances. Find out more at permikids.com. While you're out there looking around, also be sure to visit the other podcast sponsors, Your Garden Solution at yourgardensolution.org and The Good Seed Company at goodseedco.net. Now then, on to the group conversation. I'll join you again afterwards. What is mead? Oh, you're asking me. Okay. <laughs> Fermented honey water. That's it. There's much more to it than that, but you can set... Mix some water in with some honey, set it out, stir it a bit. The wild yeast and the honey in the air drops in. It ferments, and you can drink it right there, or you can bottle it, age it, that sort of thing. Other than that, my question could take another two hours to answer, So, but I'm happy to talk a little more about specifics of mead if anybody wants to. Of the folks who are here, has anybody made mead themselves? Would you care to share with us what that experience has been like? I'm actually drinking some of her mead right now. Wait, pass that this way. I didn't have any. Uh, yeah, Lauren, another housemate, and I. Oh, Ada, we've got Ada, the baby here, trying to eat the microphone. <laughs> so Lauren and I, and more recently Karina, have been uh, making mead for the past, I don't know, eight or ten months. For a while, we tried to make a different mead every other week, once a month, something like that. So we have probably 10 or 15 different kinds going right now. 
we're trying to let them age for a full year, but then things like this happen. We're like, hey, try some of this. So they're, they're dwindling a little, but we've probably got about 15 or 20 bottles racked right now. And, you know, we've got Sun Gold Mead and Tulsi Mead and just various things that we've grown or foraged, elderberry, whatever. Yeah, and it's just a really cool way to take some local products of the land and turn it into a final result that we can share in community and to relax a little and have fun. So that's it. Yeah, to follow up on her, on, on what Leah just said, mead is fermented honey water, but you can ferment practically, well, really anything edible. And I've had some people challenge me on that and ask me if you can ferment meat, maybe, Chaga. but... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, it's not going into that just yet. Uh, you can ferment wildflowers, you can ferment mushrooms, garlic, anything you grow in the garden, find in the wild that's edible. You can make into amazing meads, wines, or beers. So yeah, it, it's a great way to extend the harvest and make it even more pleasant if you give us some time to ferment and age. Jeremy or Leah, because you've been making different meads and trying different things, was there so one particular thing either that you would recommend someone try that might not be on the normal list of what you would ferment or something that was a delightful surprise when you finally popped that first bottle and poured a glass? Evidently our two biggest hits so far are kind of odd ones. We made a Tulsi or holy basil mead and a sun gold tomato mead, and both of those are pretty amazing. I, I mixed some, I blended some of yours with a bit of my apricot ginger oh, mead just cool. because Great. I like to blend meads. Yeah. Yours was very good though. <laughs> uh, flower meads, wildflower meads, the first few times I did those, every time they've pretty much been amazing. Mostly I just pick wildflowers out in my garden. Have you <laughs> so. done mushrooms? Okay, I may as well say yes, mushroom mead. You can make mead from mushrooms. Which one? Uh, shiitake. I grow shiitake. I actually made a shiitake garlic mead, which is good to sip on a little bit. It's, I prefer to use it for cooking, though, to baste mead in. For those folks who sat in on Jeremy's workshop earlier today, do you have any follow-up thoughts or questions from that experience that you might ask that folks who are new to this idea, you know, or for those audience members who aren't here with us today? I just want to say that uh, I'm really thankful to be introduced to the sort of wild fermentation process. I, I came to mead and cider making from the sort of conventional, you know, home brewing situation. And so it's, it's, it's refreshing to see that you can kind of just put some honey and water in a jar and let it sit for a while and you'll get a beautiful product at the end. We started brewing our own uh, kombucha recently and making kimchi and those kinds of things. And so it's nice to have that, that sort of analog there. I like to drink other people's kombucha. I don't like to drink my own because I get to watch it ferment. And it reminds me of something from like Metroid or another video game. You've got this big top thing and all these tendrils. I'm just like, no. But then somebody else will bring me a bottle that's theirs. I'm like, I can drink this. It's not mine. <laughs> In Sandor Katz's uh, The Art of Fermentation, there's like a pitcher section and somebody made a jacket out of scobies, like all stitched together. <laughs> so some people think they're beautiful. <laughs> to kind of move us in another direction while everyone's here and it's kind of early before Eric Perot takes over the chair in a little bit, um, with all the natural building that's occurring here in the Clear Creek community, I was wondering, um, April and Ziggy, if you could talk a bit about the work that you've been doing over the years and then running Year of the Mud and coming here to Berea to develop property and what it's like well it's a lot of work for starters um 
Uh, April and I moved to Berea from Dancing Rabbit Eco Village in Missouri about a little over two years ago. And we had at first lived together in a small 200 foot square foot cob house and a couple of years later built a straw bale timber frame house and when we built that second house we didn't have a whole lot of experience with straw bale or timber frame necessarily and in order to make that house a reality we hooked up with a couple of other individuals to teach workshops and teaching the workshops wasn't just for the benefit of other people's for our own benefit as well so we kind of you know got like a double triple benefit really because we were building our own house learning some new skills ourselves and then sharing those skills with other people and before we even really got to live and enjoy that space we made the decision to move from dancing rabbit to look for our own property where we could have more space and really kind of expand our natural building efforts and one thing led to the other and we landed here in Berea where we decided to look for property to purchase and now last year we did that we found land here in the Clear Creek Valley and um, we're just now really in the beginning phases of getting that homestead up and running and this year we'll be hosting our first natural building workshops on our own land which feels like a huge step for us because that's something we've been moving towards for any number of years now what was your question (laughs) (laughs) i'm not really sure at this moment just listening to what you shared it's that your work appeared on my radar relatively early um, when it came to natural building as i think about that what drew you to the eco village movement and dancing rabbit in particular and to really embrace this idea of natural building and the work that you're doing now i grew up in the new jersey suburbs pretty far removed from gardening or building or you know, pooping in a bucket or doing any of the things we do on a regular basis now. So I had to throw that in there. Sorry. (laughs) That environment was really far removed from the one I found myself in after college. In my final year of college, I I came upon Dancing Rabbit online and um, realized that a lot of the the uh, values that were being shared through that website and the projects that were being talked about and the ideas that were being conveyed were things that I was starting to come to naturally on my own but didn't really know what to do with them until I realized, wow, there's actually this whole movement of people trying to form communities around these very ideas that I'm becoming more and more you know, attuned to and attracted to. Um, And so when I made that move, I was 21 or 22 um, and really, really idealistic and really, really wanting to equip myself with those skills that came with living that kind of lifestyle, you know, so learning how to do gardening, learning how to do building. I came to really love the process of building even though i hadn't done anything like that before just the the act of creativity and you know envisioning a space and you know drawing it out on paper and then taking it one step further and mapping it out on the ground and then eventually building a three-dimensional space was this amazing process for me you know i had done 
a lot of video editing in school and, you know, was pretty engaged in photography and like those kinds of, you know, art form and creativity. But this was like so much more tangible and just awesome, really. I mean, it's really addictive, the process of creating a space and then getting to live in it, too, is just like pretty phenomenal feeling. So of all the work that you've done, the different techniques you've explored and ways to build in this particular climate, what's your favorite to work with? I was really attracted to Cobb initially because of the simplicity and the accessibility of the materials and the and just how direct it, it is, you know, just digging up clay right out of the ground, getting some sand, mixing the two with some straw and building your walls straight out of that is just like, who can't get excited about that? It's really pretty beautiful in its simplicity. However, April and I quickly learned the shortcomings of that material in a climate like Missouri where the winters are quite severe. Cobb isn't really insulative, so we experienced a lot of issues with our living situation trying to be not just warm but dry. We had a lot of uh, problems to overcome in that regard. And so eventually we took a lot of inspiration from looking at timber framing and straw bale buildings and especially those two in conjunction i i feel like they have a sort of a natural symbiosis and eventually we decided that was something we wanted to pursue and at this point now i feel like timber framing is definitely a primary focus for us the path we've been on now for a few years and really trying to learn more of those skills and straw bale as well really learning how to use that material effectively and efficiently and um, the two in conjunction as well just really learning the the compatibilities and the and the challenges too of of mating those two different things so i feel like those two are sort of our probably our main drive right now. It's interesting to hear that because in Pennsylvania, the easiest way to get around a lot of the building codes is to do a timber frame. And then you can infill with whatever you want. But because of the, uh, the winters that we get, straw bales seems to make the most sense for the natural building materials. Also with all the farms, it's very, very inexpensive to get and quick to go up. Do you have any other thoughts you'd like to share on your path and natural building? I think natural building is really compelling because uh, the more you learn, the more you realize there is to learn. So even though I basically started from nothing, having no skills, no real knowledge of construction, and now I think it's been about nine years since I've been on this path. And even though I feel like I've come a long way, it still feels like, wow, there's so much more to really learn and understand. And that can be sort of intimidating sometimes, but it's also really exciting. Um, it's really compelling to especially collaborate and meet other people and learn from their experiences and their challenges and their successes and just try to incorporate all of that into continuing work. It's not like a you know fixed destination, like, oh, okay, I've got it all figured out now. It's, it's always changing and you're always trying to you know, use better materials, make a more beautiful space, make a more efficient space. And that, I think, is part of the reward of working with those materials and working in that in that way is just there's always something new. And that's real. That's the addictive part. There's just something else like, wow, check this out. Let's try this thing and take it one step further. And that could be said, I think, for fermentation and for 
gardening and for pretty much all these things there's always more to learn like we're always talking about it always sharing always continuing the you know along that path I took a very circuitous route to get to permaculture. And one of the reasons why I really settled into it is because there always was something new. As I was jumping from one thing to the next throughout my 20s, it was trying to find something that I could spend the rest of my life exploring. And then when I found this, it's like, there's a whole world. And, you know, originally it started for me in the landscape. And then as it moves from the landscape to community and to people, realizing how many things that we really don't know and need to learn in order to make all these different systems and ideas function. And I think about so many of the folks who I know who want to be builder owners of their own homes. And again, especially in Pennsylvania, a lot of the ordinances, all the municipalities have different building codes and how those vary just, you know, your neighbor across the street can live in a different township and have something that's completely different from what you're, what you can legally build. And with the work that you've done, do you find that the that natural building is forgiving for someone who wants to build their own home? Or is it just a different path to get there over current modern construction of like stick-built homes? That's a really complicated question for me because there's many examples, especially when you get online of like, this house cost me $500 and look how great it is. And this house took me two weeks to build and look how awesome it is. And those are really great, beautiful projects. But sometimes when you dig a little deeper, you realize you don't actually have the full picture of that story. You're getting sort of the best of, you know, it took two weeks. It only cost $500. Well, how, how is it as an actual living space? You know, what is the, the quality of the final product? What's that? Did you live through the winter? Yeah. Did you live through the winter in it? You know, and, and I'm speaking from personal experience too. And with a little bit of, of, you know, guilt in some ways, because when I built my first house, you know, I was really excited oh it only cost me three four thousand dollars and look at it it's beautiful but at the end of the day it didn't really meet our needs so i try now at this point to really encourage people to think more deeply about the decisions they want to make and emphasize creating a you know a space that's gonna be efficient and be healthy and be long lived and you know there's so much more to it than just you know in some ways Cobb is just slapping mud on some stones and rolling with it but in in another way it's like not always just that there's a lot more to it than you know a lot more details that come in and there's a balance to be found I think between you know the the real this thing cost me 500 bucks and not wanting to go too far in one way in the other direction where it's like you know getting real crazy about costs and codes and meeting certain criteria and making it really inaccessible where it's this super specialized skill that not everyone has access to that's kind of the beauty of natural building is that it is accessible but maintaining the accessibility but still encouraging people to do good work and not just you know trying to get something up and quick yeah, I got something I could kind of add to that because it's 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 something that we get asked a lot too, and it's something that we think about too while we're building. You know, it's I. This is Eric Pira from the Push.org, by the way. And uh, what we're finding is that, like you said, it is easy actually. We have been building naturally, if that's like it's a new word now, but we have been building our own houses for thousands and thousands of years. You know, these are skills that are 
we can do them. All of us in this room can build our own houses. What we're finding is that more it's like, it's something about the, the functionality of the culture that we exist in, that that's different now. We don't have this, this multi-generations behind us who show us examples of the house that we build and then we, we just kind of build the same thing. It's all different now. Like Ziggy, you and I started at the same place, ground zero. You know, we didn't know anything about this. And so we had, you know, over many years had to figure out all these different skills and all these different things uh, and, and find all these different nuances and then learn from teachers how to adapt those nuances to Kentucky, to exactly into in this area of Kentucky or wherever we've built before. And that, that's difficult, you know, and that, that takes a lot of work. But I think once you sort of get a vernacular model sort of started in a place and you, you just kind of copy that, for lack of a better word, I think then, then building is a very easy thing. And that's what I sort of view this movement as. That's where we're at, you know. We're trying to figure out all these things. We're trying to figure out these pieces, you know. All the different work that we're doing in this room, we're advancing that those pieces that we all fill that niche in to make it easier for generations in front of us. One of the things that I really appreciate coming to this area and getting to know all the great folks who are around here is that that idea, Ziggy, that you were pushing about, you know, when you get behind that layer of like, how long did it take to build? How functional is it? You know, it only cost me $500. That a lot of the failures are obfuscated or the part of the story that was required to get there, we're not talking about. And I think this even, Jeremy, speaks to what you were doing in your book is that all the conversations I've had with the folks in this area or the books of theirs that I've read is that there's, there's a candor to it and honesty about the failures and the things that have gone wrong and trying to keep you know, something going and then having it fail on you and then learning from that so that you can do something else. And one of the things that has really little to do with that thought, <laughs> but w- continues the natural building thread, is this weekend was kind of chosen because of the push going off and doing their water reed harvesting. And one of the things that I've always appreciated from our conversations when they first started three years ago when you were in Portugal was about finding building materials that were analogs for others. And I was wondering if you could talk some about that month-long water reed harvest and also about thatching and why did you choose to go that direction for the houses that you're building here. Thanks for giving space to share, Scott. I'm, I'm Michael, also from The Push. This was our third time collecting water reed for thatching. And like Ziggy and Eric also said, we sort of started ground zero. <laughs> um, our first collection missions were, were adventures, to say the least. The first time we uh, didn't know what tools to use, so we, we collected pretty much by hand with no tools. When you, when you say that, you mean like going out and just pulling up the individual reeds and then trip? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, And the reason we did that is because we were collecting at the wrong time of year. Um, We talked to some English thatchers and they said, well, you can harvest in in May, but it's going to be difficult. I mean, we listened to them, but but we tried it anyway. And with with all the new growth, for every handful that you took and cut, you would maybe get, you know, 10 10 pieces or so of, of harvestable reed. So we had to individually select. So... You know, we spent two weeks out there and collected how many bundles? Maybe 200-something, 8-inch, 10-inch bundles. Second time, we went back at the right time of year, but only with uh, three people, and we collected another 200 bundles in 10 days or so. And then this time, we did it proper. We went out there. We planned for a month 
our goal was 2,000 bundles, and we collected 1,700 in about four weeks of work with a steady team of four. And we had uh, some action days where we had, you know, 10, 12 people out there. Um, we set up a teepee. We had sort of a cooking living space where it was comfortable. And we feel really good about that. And, you know, it's not it's not the ideal situation where we would, ha- we would have a managed reed bed where everything that we collect would be first year growth. But we, we're just sort of accepting that, you know, we're getting second and third year growth and and that's also going to go into our roof and, and that's okay. You know, that's something that, that we're comfortable with. And it was a great experience doing that. And why thatching? With all the material that you have on the land here in Kentucky, you know, I would have thought something like some kind of a hardwood shake or just about anything other than this particular type of roof. Yeah, we talk a lot about that within our group too. The two natural roof styles that we're most excited about are are primarily thatch, and and a close second would be would be wood shakes. But just the sheer magnitude of wood that you have to use to build a a shake roof is is it's it's a lot of wood, and it's a lot of quality wood. And we we're blessed to have these mesophytic forests here where we have access to that wood. But you know even even that idea of of cutting that much that many trees down and taking the time it would to dry them out. With thatch, it's uh, with especially water reed because you can use wheat straw, you can use other types of grasses for thatch. But with with water reed, it's the most durable. It's literally just the plant that you put up on the roof at a 50, 50 or forty five degree pitch, and it can last up to 70, 80 years. And it's insulative and waterproof in the same roof. Just with this material, it grows in one year, whereas a tree that we, you would use for shakes would take you know eighty, sometimes up to hundreds of years to grow. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, th- that was really the crux of it, wasn't it? We were we were walking with a two-man saw on our stretched over our shoulder down the road to a it was what 130-year-old oak, white oak that fell down here on uh, this land, and we were just doing some calculations in our head. You know, how many shakes are we getting out of this roof? How big is our roof? How many of these trees have to fall down every year? How many 150-year-old trees are there still in these forests? And, and it, we just kind of came to this conclusion that, you know, we just, we can do shakes for little projects, but we just can't do it. You know, it can't be our bulk roof supply. So, you know, pitch the teepee and harvested some reed. But yeah, you, I think you, you talked about that great. I mean, I, there's so many failures that is involved with our reed harvesting. It's incredible. You know, there's so many things that we've learned and so many things that we've got better at about that. That is just, uh, that is just absolutely like... Um, just, just incredible. So all these things take time. I want to come back to this, but um, Susanna's running short on time this evening. It's okay. We started very late. I wanted to ask your apprentices, Susanna. Um, they, can, they can stay. They can tell you anything after I leave. <laughs> I just have to go to a birthday party. Yeah. Is, is that when you leave? Is that when they start dishing the dirt? <laughs> yeah. Please do. <laughs> Though, um, before we move to them while you're here with us, could you tell us a bit about your apprentice program and how you go about choosing who you have come work on your farm? Especially because, as I think I've said before, you have one of the most well-established permaculture farms that I've encountered that's actually really functioning in a way that is well-designed and organized, that is productive. You know, between your CSA and then what you're selling at market, your ability to you know, harvest ramps and do all these other things that fit within this ethos of not only taking care of 
people, but also earth. And from our conversations off mic, you've had a lot of time to come to that place through 30 years now of permaculture work. But what are you looking for when you're looking for someone to instill these ideas on for another generation? Well, there's a few people after I leave in this room besides the, this year's apprentices who can talk, talk to that experience. But let me say that I come to permaculture, I have since I first learned about it in the 80s at New Alchemy Institute when I lived in Boston and was first working in permaculture. When I returned to the States from many years of working with permaculture in Latin America, I decided to focus on permaculture farming. Permaculture means so many things, and even with the discussion that has happened so far with natural building is part of that, but we all do what we can and what we come from. And so the immersion experience that I provide for apprentices is really oriented to people who want to grow staples and vegetables, food for a community in an alternative to the big machines and the petroleum-based food in which even those of us who try to buy organic still depend on in this world. And so that's my, my goal here in the world right now is to focus on farming because I came from that. And back when I started with permaculture... And I started teaching, you know, in New England organic farming. And I, I taught with Dave Jackie, and I did do work with the permaculture movement. But I started moving toward farming because I thought it was more important that people learned whether or not they knew the word permaculture, that they learned ways that we can do it without petroleum. And so I focused on farming teaching farmers, teaching people who want to do organic farmers how they can use less resources, less tillage, less disruption of the soil. So I, you know, I, I love the, the conversation we've had on natural building, and I, I, I follow Ziggy and April's path in, in what I've done on natural building on the farm, too, because I, I totally agree. Cobb is just not insulative enough in this environment either in Kentucky. I've gone to clay straw, but in any case, I feel like the self-sustaining farm has to focus first, like Dave Holgram says, on, you know, you have to eat first. That's the most important thing. If we do a lot of projects and we're still buying from the system, I think that's the most important thing. So, and I would love my apprentices, even though they've just started, the two that are here and the people, to talk about how it is so far for them to make that jump from whether wherever they came from, from playing gigs on the road or living in the city, to pooping in a bucket, as you just said, to. To live in off-grid with no electric, you know, spring water, gravity feed, nothing from the grid whatsoever. And, you know, the reality of that is pretty intense. And so for me, I enjoy teaching. I feel that teaching workshops at farming conferences is just one little piece. I feel like the immersion experience for people who stay at the farm and live it is, you know, when they've decided to make that switch, they decide whether or not, what piece of it is for them. 
And for some people, it's even then we've been talking about natural building, and that's what you all, the push people who just have joined us in this community, are starting with. And that's important too. I mean, I think food and shelter are the first two things, they are the most important. But what I believe, I mean, we've been talking about community here. I believe permaculture is so different. I teach with, because I do biodynamics, I teach with other farming communities. And I feel like they distinguish, okay, you're doing permaculture, you're doing organic, you're doing biodynamic. I said, well, permaculture is just, you know, about everything, about designing our lives. And so permaculture principles can be applied to anybody. And what we're doing here with the economic and social systems in this valley, I think is what inspires me because I mean we can all only do so much and you know my time as a farmer is very limited and I feel like I can only contribute so much to what you all are doing but it's important that it's here and and that we all are part of uh, economic system you know back when I started you know I'm the oldest one in this whole group I just looked around I'm like oh yeah I'm going toward AR I get ARRP stuff now <laughs> and I learned about permaculture in the 80s so boy but back when I started I really thought I could do it all I really thought you know well well Amy and Christian have the cow now you know they're down the creek we get raw milk from them and I still beat myself up that I don't have a cow on my pasture, you know, that I haven't been able to afford fencing. Well, why, you know? Well, I guess because I grew up German. <laughs> and I thought I should do it all. So that's what community is about, is to teach people like me that grew up in that American Gothic Midwest culture that you're supposed to, you know, be so totally self-sufficient. Self-sufficiency to me is not what this is about. It's local sufficiency. And so that's what inspires me. I mean, I I still I still try to live by self-sufficiency, but I understand that I can't do it all. And that was Jeremy Zimmerman, author of Make Me Like a Viking, Ziggy Laloya of The Year of Mud, Eric Perrow and Michael Beck of The Push, and Susanna Lane of Salamander Springs Farm. You'll find links to more information from each of them in the show notes at thepermaculturepodcast.com or in your favorite podcast app. If after listening to this interview, there is any way I can help you on your journey to do what it is that inspires you to move towards new traditions and community, whether you're just beginning or are fairly well established, get in touch. The phone number for the show is 717-827-6266. And my email address is show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. If you find that digital means are not your preferred way to reach out, you can also drop something in the mail. That address is the Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here in less than two weeks is the Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergence outside of Charlestown, West Virginia. Our keynote speaker for the day is Michael Judd, talking about his experiences as a permaculture practitioner with opening remarks from Joel Glansberg. Classes and workshops are scheduled throughout the day on living in the gift, animals and permaculture, broadacre permaculture, whole systems learning, as well as a series of plant walks and tree ID sessions. Until the next time, which will be the second half of this roundtable, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.